The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things... To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's open in a word of prayer. And then we'll begin our study in 1 John and 1 John 2.18. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that as we study, you would give us insight and understanding, comparing Scripture with Scripture, that we may gain a fuller understanding of your revelation about the future and your warnings to us. Father, now we pray that you would challenge us with your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 John 2.18 Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now this is the third Sunday on this particular verse. The first Sunday we focused on the first phrase, Children, it is the last hour. And the fact that this emphasizes the doctrine of eminency. Eminency refers to the idea that Jesus Christ, the doctrine that Jesus Christ can return at any moment. In other words, there is nothing prophetic that must occur prior to the return of Jesus Christ in order for him to return. He could have returned in the first century. In fact, there are many passages in Scripture that indicate that the apostles expected him to return in their lifetime. He could have returned in the 2nd century, 3rd century, or any other century. He could have returned yesterday. He could return this afternoon. He might not return for another 100 or 500 or 1,000 years. It can happen at any moment, and therefore we must be prepared. We must be ready because we do not know at what time he may appear. Now, there are certain trends that are going to take place during this present age, the church age, that are going to be, as, as it were, cycles through the history of the church age. And that is what is referred to in the next section of this verse. Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. And from this we know that it is the last hour. Now, I said before that this is a chiasm. That means that you have sort of an, uh, the three or four elements and the first and the fourth element mirror each other and the second and the third element reflect each other. So the first element, it is the last hour, is reflected in the last sentence. From this we know that it is the last hour. 
The two elements in the middle of a chiasm are the focal point of the verse. Just as in a uh, work of art, there may be one particular figure, one uh, element, one aspect in that uh, art that is highlighted. It's lighter. It's, uh, uh, the, the, the other colors around it are all darker. The background image is darker, but this one item is done in slightly lighter colors, and your eye is immediately drawn to that as the focal point of the picture. It may not be in the center. It may be up in a corner or down to the side, but, but it's that which, to which the eye is immediately drawn. And that's the focus of a, or the purpose of a chiasm is to draw the attention of our mind's eye to a particular point. And that is the doctrine referring to the Antichrist. Now, we have two statements here in the middle. The first is that Antichrist is coming. That is a singular noun referring to a particular individual. It is a present tense, but it's a future present, indicating that this is something that is in the future, and yet its certainty is so sure that it is spoken of in the present tense. And then we have the second clause, which uses a plural noun that many antichrists have, that is, in the present, arisen. And this is the trend in the church age, is that there will be many antichrists that arise. Now, the term antichrist does not mean someone who is against Christ. The English uh, prefix anti, A-N-T-I, means against. But in the Greek, we have the prefix anti, A-N-T-I, which is a uh, preposition for substitution. And this is not someone who is against Christ, although that is implied in the concept, but it's someone who is offering himself as a substitute Christ. So what John warns is that there are going to be Throughout the church age, many religious leaders that rise up claiming to be Christ. This is exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew 24 as one of the trends of the church age. And we see that there are many religious leaders who claim to have absolute truth. And uh, in order to prepare you for what you covered on Wednesday nights while I was gone in terms of the study of Islam, I took this section out of order, as it were, the Sunday before I left for Ukraine in order to use that as an example of looking at Islam and an introduction to Islam and the religious claims of Islam and that Islam is not a peaceful religion. Islam is, a, by its very nature, a violent religion. It is the concept of Islam is to bring the world into submission to Allah. And that is done if no other way works, it's done through violence. And this has been the history of the Islamic movement ever since the 7th or 7th century when it was founded. And uh, some people say, well, there's been violence and there have been crusades by Christians. Now, your response to that is that all the violence and all the crusades that have been committed in the name of Christianity and in the name of the Bible are wrong. They have been in violation. They are in disobedience to the Scripture. But that is not what the Scripture teaches. So people distorted the Bible in order to carry out violence in the name of Christ, in order to carry out crusades in the name of, uh, of Christ. That is in contrast to what the Bible actually teaches. However, if you read the book, uh, uh, the uh, Quran, you will discover that violence is what is authorized in the Quran. Many, many places. I went through those scriptures. It is the method that, uh, that is um, authorized in the Quran. So when uh, 
Muslims go on a jihad, a holy war, and commit violence, they're doing exactly what their holy book says they are to do, whereas when Christians do it, they are in disobedience to what the Bible says. And that is the way that you should handle that. So we took the time to look at that third clause. Even now, many antichrists have arisen to show that throughout the church age, whether you're talking about someone like Muhammad and uh, Islam or Joseph Smith and the Mormons or Mary Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddy, and Christian Science, or whether you're talking about Ellen White and the Seventh-day Adventists, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or any of these other uh, pseudo-religions, or uh, Christian cults that have uh, distorted the teaching of Christianity. They are all manifestations of this cycle that throughout the church history there are going to be these false religious claims. Now, the reason for that is because the ultimate power behind all of those ideologies and all of those religions is Satan. Religion is Satan's greatest tool. It is his most effective device. Now, the way I define religion is that religion is man trying to gain God's approval through his own works and through his own efforts. Man thinking that by participation in ritual, uh, by reforming his life, by giving money to the church, by being just aligned by membership with the right organization, that somehow that is going to impress God enough that God will overlook his sins. But we, that's because we have such a shallow view of sin. Most Christians do not take sin seriously. Uh, you talk to some Christians and they talk about, well, you can commit some sins and lose your salvation. They don't take sin seriously. If they understood how sinful and how horrible it was for God to uh, announce what a violation was of God's standard, to be bitter, to be jealous, to be arrogant, as opposed to the sins they usually focus on, such as uh, immorality or, or um, sexual immorality or murder or gambling or some such overt sin, they would realize that it is those subtle, unseen, mental attitude sins that are really the worst. And uh, all sin in God's eyes is sinful, and any sin violates the, uh, his perfect righteousness just as much as any other sin. So in our eyes, we have this relative categorization of sins based upon uh, their foreseen consequences. But in God's eyes, all sin is equally a violation of his character. And so if we take sin seriously, we realize that there is nothing that we can do in order to gain God's approval. We cannot gain his approbation through our works, through our religious activities, through ritual through anything of, of that nature. It's amazing how many people are involved in this. I saw an example of it in great detail when I was over in Ukraine on this trip. One Sunday, it turned out it was Chris, their, their Christmas Eve, which is January, uh, their Christmas is January 6th, so this was Sunday a couple of weeks ago on January 5th. Uh, we, in the afternoon, we went to a Russian Orthodox service. Now, Russian Orthodox service Inside the church, there are no pews. You do not sit. You, there is no instruction. There is no such thing as Sunday school. Most who are Russian Orthodox have no clue what the Bible teaches, never have read the Bible for themselves because, of course, only the priesthood can accurately understand it or interpret it, and that must be understood in the light of uh, thousands of years of church tradition. You go into the church, and it's, um, there's a forward section that's the Holy of Holies, and that stands behind... A screen, and that screen goes from 
floor to ceiling, and it's covered with icons representing different, and these are really symbols of different biblical stories or biblical characters. You have angels are a favorite motif, and of course the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus, and you have uh, Christ pictures of the crucifixion are all there. And on occasion the door opens, and you will see the priest and other priests in the background in all of their robes and vestments. And he will walk out among the masses. And usually there's a couple of aisles in the shape of a cross. And he will walk out swinging his ball of incense. And smoke goes everywhere. And as Jim said, he had to take me there so I could smell the smells and hear the bells. <laughs> and it goes on for about two hours. And when it's all over with, you can hardly see. We did not. I mean, it's just uh, it's amazing those people aren't dying of cancer just from all the ins- secondhand incense smoke. <laughs> You know, just wait, wait till the anti-smoking crowd gets over there. But uh, it is, uh, we just, I could only last about 30 minutes and that was about it. But it's phenomenal to see the, the spiritual slavery that occurs as a result of all of that ritual. And then people have no assurance of salvation. They're overwhelmed with, with guilt. They don't know anything about uh, true deliverance from sin. And it's just a, um, it's a wicked system as are all religious systems, and that is Satan's greatest tool. As opposed to that, Christianity is based on grace. Jesus Christ did everything for us on the cross. Salvation is not based on uh, participation in any ritual. It's not based on association with any particular religious body or group. It's not based on moral reformation. In fact, after you're saved, you may be just as moral, if not more, or less moral than you were before you were saved simply because now there's a new spiritual warfare dimension in your life that wasn't there before. Uh, Christianity teaches that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing that Satan hates and despises, it is grace. And that goes back to the fact that in his initial rebellion against God, when God condemned Lucifer, who was so proud that he thought he could be like God and uttered his five I wills in Isaiah uh, 14, 10 through 12, when he uttered his five I wills, his final one was, I will be like the Most High. And so when God condemned him to eternity in the lake of fire, he challenged God with the fact that, among other things, that God really wasn't fair, that God really didn't give him enough of an opportunity to demonstrate who he was and what he could do, and that God was not a loving God, and he, and he was not gracious towards his creatures. And in human history, God is demonstrating the extent of his grace and that a relationship with him is not based on who we are. See, Satan thought everything was based on who we are because he was the most brilliant, the most attractive, the most beautiful, the most talented uh, creature that God ever created. And so he thought that everything relied upon who and what you are. And God is teaching through Jesus Christ and through the grace principle throughout the ages the opposite of what Satan is espousing, and that is that who we are, personal abilities, attractiveness, and talents are not the issue. The issue is God. The issue is who he is and what he has done for us. And so Satan is going to oppose God, and according to prophecy, there will be one particular individual who will be the, almost as it were, uh, the counter to Christ in terms of almost an incarnation, not of Christ, but uh, not of God, but of Satan. And this is the person that is that we call the Antichrist. Now, the term in the singular, referring to a particular individual, is only used one time in the New Testament, and that is in this particular verse. But it has come to be the primary title by which we refer to this individual, that uh, this person who is called by many other titles in Scripture, 
is the Antichrist. So this morning we're going to review the doctrine of the Antichrist. And for those of you who were here on Sunday night, this will be a nice addition to the doctrine we covered on Sunday night where we compared the little horn of Daniel, chapter 7, with the beast in Revelation. So if you put your notes together from Wednesday night with the notes here, you're going to have a pretty extensive uh, coverage of the doctrine of the Antichrist. So we'll begin with point number one. The Antichrist is a term that refers to the key human leader during the tribulation who opposes the plan of God. He is the pawn of Satan and attempts to destroy the Jews. We must remember that God chose Israel as his chosen people. He has never gone back on that promise, even though Israel as a nation, because of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah, is under divine discipline to this day, that God still has a future plan for Israel. And this is something that we have to address in the coming year. I've got to put together a series addressing this because this is something I'm discovering more and more that people do not understand, and that is God's, that God still has a plan for Israel, that there is a future purpose for Israel. And to understand what is going on in the Middle East today, to understand the antagonism of Islam towards Israel, and that the key issue in this whole a terrorist attack and all of these bombings is Israel, the existence of the independent nation Israel, and the Temple Mount specifically. Uh, if you don't understand that, then you cannot understand what is really going on in this, in this war. And that is why uh, Islam is just one manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist, because they want to destroy Israel. Arafat has stated in Arabic, not in English, because he doesn't want to say these kinds of things in English, but he has stated clearly in Arabic many times that their goal is not simply the establishment of an independent Palestinian state, but to have a but to have no Israeli state at all. That the Arabs, the Palestinians, will control Jerusalem and all of the land, and there will be no Jew left alive in Israel. That is their agenda, and that is the agenda of Satan, because God has made various promises in the Old Testament. To the Jews, and if Satan can wipe out all of the Jews before God fulfills his promises, then he is going to demonstrate that he is better than God and that God is incapable of ruling his creation. So, he is one of his major agendas of the Antichrist and the tribulation will be to destroy the Jews. Now, Scripture uses numerous titles for him, and the title most often used is the one in this passage. And that is that of Antichrist. Also used in 1 John 2.22, where John says, Who is the liar but the one who denies Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, the one who also denies the Father and the Son. Now, as I stated earlier, we have to remember the meaning here that the idea is not one who opposes Christ or is against Christ, but is one who offers himself as a substitute Messiah. And this is why halfway through the tribulation, he will set up a statue to himself in the Holy of Holies, in the tribulation temple. Now, that's, that's one of the most interesting things to think about, is that right now, the Jews, there are many groups, for example, the um, Temple Institute and the Temple Mount Faithful and other groups that want to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. There's just one little problem, and that's that that's where the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are located. And if they rebuild the temple, they are going to inflame the hatred of all the uh, Muslims in the world. So that's just a minor little inconvenience. 
But the picture we have at the beginning of the tribulation is that the Antichrist is going to sign this covenant with Israel. And I think that as part of that covenant, there's going to be the authorization for Israel to rebuild the temple. Now, that, the implication of that is significant because that suggests that Islam is not a major antagonistic force, in or, at least to the Antichrist, that somehow he has mollified or placated or defeated and humiliated them so that he is able to pull this off without creating a reaction. Can you imagine what it would be like today if the head of the European Economic Community or President Bush or, or somebody else said to... Uh, the Jews go ahead, build the temple, blow up the Temple Mount, get rid of it. I mean, blow up the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and Dome of the Rock, get rid of it, and go build the temple. Can you imagine the furor coming out of uh, Saddam Hussein and Iran and Egypt and Saudi Arabia? So something has to happen to humiliate and defang Islam before that can happen. Now, I don't know that that's what's going on today. I'm... Only history will tell, but it seems to me that that's a real possibility that in the midst of this war that we are engaged in with terrorism, that ultimately that's what it will do. Uh, it's also possible that, as I stated on Wednesday night, the scenario that, that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that the uh, Gog coming out of the north, which is Meshach and Tubal, which is usually identified with uh, Russia, that Russia will invade the Middle East. And in the course of that invasion, there is a massive destruction of that army as well as the army of Egypt such that um, the Antichrist has to come in and declare peace, mop things up, and maybe it's in the course of that war that uh, Islam is humbled. But there's a number of different scenarios. We can't say with dogmatism what they will be, but it certainly uh, gives us something to think about. There's no picture in the scriptures that at the beginning of the tribulation that the U.S. is defanged or is not in existence or that Western Europe has somehow been humiliated by Islam. So that ought to give us some confidence in the current conflict. What are some other titles given to the Antichrist? Point number two, we're going to look at other titles. First of all, he's called the Little Horn in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. He's the little horn. Daniel says, well, I was contemplating the horns. That is the ten horns on the, on the final beast, the fourth beast. Behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So this little horn is in contrast to the ten horns. That ten nations making up this ten-nation confederacy related to the uh, Western Empire and the revival of the Roman Empire. And this little horn is going to come out from their midst. He is going to, by war, defeat three of them and then pull together this coalition. So he is called the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. And then he is referred to as the insolent king in Daniel 8, verse 23. There we read, in the latter period of their rule, that is the rule of the uh, revived Roman Empire, when the transgressions, transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. So that gives us a certain insight into his character, that he is arrogant towards God. And of course, the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 is said to utter boasts against God and arrogant words, great words literally in the Hebrew against God. And so he is insolent and he is skilled in intrigue. He's working behind the scenes. He is a master manipulator and the master of diplomacy to achieve his ends. 
He is called the Prince who is to come in Daniel 9.26. There we read after the 62 weeks, that is after the 62 plus the 7 weeks, so after the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. We've studied that prophecy. The weeks aren't weeks, they're years. It was actually a period of 173,880 days from uh, the first of Nisan, 444 B.C., when Artaxerxes I uh, issued a decree for the Jews under Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the outer fortifications, to rebuild the walls. And this remarkable prophecy in Daniel 9 said that from that date, 173,880 days would transpire before the Messiah would be cut off. The end, the, the 173,880th day was what we call Palm Sunday, the Sunday Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem in that triumphal entry, and it was just three days later that he was hung on the cross and crucified. The Antichrist is then called the one who makes desolate in the next verse, which refers to the abomination of desolation referred to in both Daniel 9.27 and Matthew 24.15. Daniel 9.27 we read, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate. He will make desolate when he uh, sets up his uh, idol in the temple, then there will come wars. His, the, the unified global empire he has established in the first three and a half years will begin to fragment and fall apart and ultimately ending up in major world war uh, at the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the next three and a half years. He is called the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Where we're told, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy. That's a bad translation. Uh, the Greek word apostasia also means departure. That's its root core meaning. Apostasy means to depart from the truth. So that should be translated, it will not come unless the departure comes first. And that is a reference to the rapture. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is, the appearance of the Antichrist, will not come unless the departure comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So he is referred to as the man of lawlessness. And then, of course, the last phrase there, he is referred to as the son of destruction. This is what characterizes him. He brings destruction with him. Uh, during the tribulation, the earth's population will be diminished by about 60 to 70 percent. Right now we have 7 billion on the earth, so that means about 4 to 4.5 billion people will be killed during that 7.5 year period through wars and through plagues and through various other uh, natural and supernatural disasters. He is called uh, the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 then that lawless one will be revealed. He is lawless because he has rejected the absolutes of God. Of course, he has his own law that he is espousing, but it is in rejection to the absolute law of God. In Revelation, he is called the beast. This pictures him in all of his horror that man, when man gives rein to his sin nature, he is not something that is glorified. He is something that is bestial. We often think of of uh, people in our own time frame like Saddam Hussein or the Ayatollah Khomeini. They were just pikers compared to people like Adolf Hitler, but he was an amateur compared to Stalin. We never give Stalin his due, but Stalin is thought conservatively to have murdered at least 25 million Russians between 1930 and uh, uh, 
1945. During the, the 30s, he killed about 25 million. In the year before World War II started, he wiped out 80% of his uh, of the upper echelon of his officer corps. Uh, that's one reason the Soviets had a lot of problems responding to Hitler was because all of their good officers had been uh, murdered by Stalin. He was a uh, mass murderer, homicidal maniac. Um, more extreme numbers suggest that he might have been responsible for the deaths of as many as 100,000. Of course, that doesn't count the 27 million that were uh, Russians that were killed uh, in World War II by the Germans. So uh, it's amazing that the Soviets survived with that large a number of people in their population destroyed. But that's the bestial nature of man. Man is not something that is wonderful. Man is not, in his humanity, it's not something to, that is to be exalted. Too often liberals think that man is so good and man is basically wonderful. And the picture of the Bible is man, apart from God and apart from the grace of God, is bestial. So he is the personification of all of that in one person, and he is called the uh, first beast. Revelation 13.1, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And this is his... his uh, he is the ruler of the ten-nation confederacy. He is called the despicable person. In Daniel 11.21, In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So he seizes through intrigue and conspiracy, and it's at a time of peace. That's why the Apostle Paul says that at that time people will be crying peace and safety, not because that's what they want, but because that is what they think they have. It's a false peace in the world, not based on God's plan and God's provision. Daniel 11.36, he's called the strong-willed king. Verse 36 says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Zechariah eleven sixteen and 17, he's called the worthless shepherd. For behold, God says, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing. He will not seek the scattered, not heal the broken, and not sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their, their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd! who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm, and on his right eye, his arm will be totally withered, his right eye will be blind. And that's a picture of the uh, destructiveness of the shepherd because he is, serves his own ends with no concern for the people. Okay, that was all point number two, covering the various titles of the Antichrist in Scripture. Point number three, the Antichrist will be of Gentile origin. He is not a Jew by birth, he is a Gentile. And we know this for several reasons. First of all, he is pictured typologically by the Gentile Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 pictures this uh, individual as one who also blasphemed and committed abominations in the temple. He was not the fulfillment of those other prophecies, but he was, a, he was to foreshadow what the Antichrist would do. So he's pictured typologically by a Gentile. Secondly, in the imagery of prophecy in Revelation 13.1 and 17.15, he arises out of the sea as opposed to the second beast who comes out of the land. And the term the land often refers to Israel as the promised land. So he comes out of the sea, which is a picture of the fallen, turbulent Gentile nations. That's Revelation 13.1 and Revelation 17.15. 
third reason we say he's of Gentile origin is that he is the final emperor during the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21:24, and put that in conjunction with what we studied in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 on Wednesday nights, that he is the, uh, the king of the fourth empire, the revived Roman Empire. So that would indicate he's a Gentile. And then he will most likely be of Roman or at least Roman Empire descent. Romans 9.27, he is the prince who is to come. So he is in, in that descent. And that, mean, that does not exclude the U.S. because many of our uh, ancestors came out of the what was part of the old Roman Empire. They immigrated over here. They brought the, that culture. They brought that background with them. And as I stated on Wednesday night, in the founding of this nation, the the, the predecessor, ideological predecessor was Rome. They looked back to the Roman Republic and the establishment of a republic. And if you study the, the education system in the late 18th century in this country, the ideal that was studied was Rome, not Greece. They didn't emphasize Greece in the 18th century. They emphasized Rome and a republic, and they had no respect at all for Greece and a democracy. It wasn't until the 19th century, around the 1840s to 1850s, that a transition occurred and a change occurred in our education system where Greece began to be uh, idolized and looked to as opposed to Rome. And that has, you know, just a sidelight for those of you who are going through school, is that Abraham Lincoln was trained and educated in that system where Greece was emphasized and Lincoln came along and in Lincoln's policies, you see a major shift that occurred in the history of the United States so that the model was no longer the Republican model of Rome, but this dem- de- Democratic model of Greece. And you see a major shift. And all of this is really encapsulated in the Gettysburg Address. And in the Gettysburg Address, you see just a, a, a microcosm there of what Lincoln did in changing, radically shifting the ideological frame of reference for the United States has shifted from the Constitution to the Declaration of Independence and caused a major shift in, in American uh, government and political thinking. And therefore, that is the great watershed looking at the uh, Gettysburg Address. Uh, fourth point. Fourth point. The Antichrist rises to power following the Confederation of Ten Nations. So first, in, in this order of development, there's going to be this Ten-nation confederacy, it might be a few less, it might be a few more before the rapture, we don't know. But this is going to coalesce, and as I've said before, there is a, there's a time gap that occurs between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Tribulation begins when the Antichrist signs this peace treaty. So there could be a period of days, weeks, months, maybe even years, we don't know. But certain things are going to transpire in that period of time in response to the rapture. If the rapture occurred today, we would lose a president. He's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that man knows the Word, and he knows doctrine. He's making decisions based on a doctrine that he knows. And this is a man that every believer ought to be praying for consistently. And we just, isn't it fascinating to watch a man who has character and honesty and watch how the press and the liberals just don't know how to respond to a man who has just real internal character. And that is because of his convictions and his knowledge of the Word. But if the rapture occurred today, we would not only lose the president and vice president, we would lose numerous members of the cabinet, we would lose numerous members of of the Senate and the House of Representatives, uh, plus local leaders, business leaders. Uh, It would create havoc. There would be probably a a tremendous collapse. So 
so many things are going to happen after the rapture that it's going to take some time for people to pull it all together again. And that's what's going to, it's that vacuum, power vacuum created that will give the opportunity for the Antichrist to move into a position of power. So there's going to be this uh, transition period. He will assume control by force. He subdues three of the ten members. And then probably about that time is when uh, he will sign the peace treaty with Israel. So we won't ever know who he is. No one in the church age will be able to identify the Antichrist because we won't be here. Point number six, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he sets up his statue in the Holy of Holies in the tribulation temple. And this is known as the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. His attempt at self-deification will be seen in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 and is also seen in Daniel chapter 11, 36 and 37. Those verses again are 2 Thessalonians 2.4 and Daniel 11:36 and 37. In the Bible, he's usually pictured as a warrior. As a warrior, he's going forth to war. He pursues peace and he wages war. He operates on deceitful tactics. He's pictured in Revelation 6.1 as the first one to go forth on a white horse, conquering and to conquer, the first horse of the apocalypse. So he is pictured as a warrior. Eighth, he is personally indwelt by Satan. This is in Revelation chapter 13.2, where we read, The beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like those of a bear, his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, that is Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And then we're told that the first three and a half years of his uh, of the tribulation represent his rise to power, where he reaches a global power where no one in the world can buy or sell or engage in marketplace, the marketplace unless they bear the mark of the beast. He will persecute Christians and other opponents in a reign of terror that goes beyond any persecution, pogrom, or holocaust ever before experienced in human history. He will make Hitler, Saddam Hussein the Ayatollah Khomeini and Stalin all look like a bunch of amateurs. Tenth, the Antichrist will exercise a global economic authority so that no one can engage in commercial activity unless they bear his mark. Acquisition of that mark will be a sign of loyalty to the Antichrist. In fact, many suggest that an oath will have to be sworn, an, uh, uh, an oath of loyalty to the Antichrist before they will get the mark. Scripture says that no believer will get this mark and that no one with this mark will be saved. And that's seen in Revelation 13:16. He causes all, the great and the small, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. It could be a tattoo. It could be some sort of, uh, some people have said an embedded chip or something like that, but it's visible so that you can look at a person and see whether or not they have sworn allegiance to the Antichrist. This is not something that is hidden, something that you only see under a black light or something like that. Uh, Revelation 13:17. he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And that's no one. This is a global context. And then Revelation 20, verse 4 states, Then I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was given to them, that is, to the saints, the church-age believers. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Eleventh point, at the end of the seven years, his worldwide coalition begins to fragment. An army from the east will invade in concert with one from the south. He then comes to protect the interests in the Middle East, 
And so you have the convergence of these armies at Armageddon. This culminates in the campaign of Armageddon and ultimately his destruction. Jesus Christ returns, saves the earth from self-destruction, saves Israel from destruction, and that is the end of the tribulation. At which point his destiny is that he is sent to the lake of fire along with the false prophet in Revelation 19, 11 to 21. So that is the career and the campaign of the Antichrist. So we look back at our passage in 1 John 2.18 where we read, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard, Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have arisen. You see, in every generation, Satan has to have his man ready. Satan does not know when the rapture is going to be any more than you do or I do. So in every generation, he has to have somebody primed and ready to go. That's why if you lived in uh, the, ninth, or the uh, 17th century, you had your idea of who the Antichrist was. If you lived in the 18th century, you had your idea. Uh, people thought it was Hitler. They thought it was Mussolini. They thought it was uh, further back. They thought it was Napoleon. They thought it was Bismarck. Um, it could have been any of them if that had been the rapture generation. So we can always find somebody to point to and say, maybe that's who it is. But we won't know until after the rapture. But the Antichrist is a substitute Messiah. His focus will be to destroy everything related to God. His focus will be to destroy the Jews as a testimony to God's grace. Because what could be a greater testimony to God's grace than his ultimate salvation of the Jews, despite the fact that they rejected the incarnation of Jesus Christ as his son, that, that for most of the church age they were hostile to Jesus Christ, and yet eventually God will save them because, you see, all sin is just as heinous to God, and it was all paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, so that the issue is not our works, but our faith in Jesus Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for what you have provided for us in Jesus Christ, that he paid the penalty for every single sin that we commit in human history so that the issue is not our own works, it's not our own um, Morality, it's not our involvement in the right group. It is simply our faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of what you have done or what you haven't done. It's simply a matter of faith alone. Faith is something that anybody can do. Anybody can believe. And it's not believing in a vacuum. It's believing based on the evidence. And the evidence is clear in the Scriptures that Jesus Christ was who He claimed to be. He fulfilled over 200 prophecies from the Old Testament. He fulfilled them to the precise letter and precise detail of each and every prophecy. And He went to the cross... There he died as a substitute for your sin. So the issue now is what do you believe? If you trust Christ as your Savior, right now God knows what you are trusting for your salvation. And at the instant of your faith alone in Christ alone, you are instantly regenerated, you are entered into the family of God, and you have an eternal destiny in heaven. Father, we pray that you would challenge all of us with the things that we have studied today, that we might be prepared for the imminent return of our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.